Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We will make a start. Um, good evening to those of you that are here in the room with us and those of you that are joining us online. Um, I'm going to begin, if I may, by acknowledging the traditional owners and the custodians of the land on which we are gathered. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend those, that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us this evening. Um, as well as welcoming you all, I will acknowledge a few people in particular. Uh, Ms. Emma Vuetti, President of the Pacific Islands Council of Queensland. Ms. Lynette Wessel, President of the PNG Federation of Queensland. Ms. Irie Chow, President of the Pacific Women's Alliance. Councillor Imelda Davis, Chair of the Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson. Professor Ian Hall, who is Acting Director of the Griffith Asia Institute. Mr. Ian Clark, President of the Australia Pacific Business Council, Mr. Frank Yorn, Executive Director of the Australia PNG Business Council, the Australia Fiji Business Council, and the Australia Pacific Business Council. And with that, um, we'll consider all those formalities to have been observed. A couple of housekeeping items for those of you that are here in the room with us. Toilets, including for wheelchair users, are located immediately to the left of the entrance or exit to the lecture theatre. In the event that the evacuation alarm sounds or you're advised to evacuate the building, do not panic. Please remain calm and leave the building immediately and assemble on the grassed area which is to the left of the main entrance to this building. Friends and colleagues, I'd now like to introduce you to the panel members who have joined us this evening for our conversation. Um, now, I'm not going to go in order that they appear, so I'll ask them to wave at you so that they, you know who it is. First of all, we have Fipe Prius. Fipe is a Samoan multidisciplinary artist, entrepreneur, and marine and environmental activist. She's co-founder of Living Cocoa, a zero-waste cacao and chocolate manufacturing space based on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne, Australia. She's also the founder of Cocoa Smooth, a chocolate-based skincare line importing medicinal oils from the Pacific Islands. And she is the artistic director and founder of Vayusu The Creative Space, a creative production company that focuses on supporting global indigenous creatives. Malo, Pipe. Uh, next we have Zane, Zane Yoshida. Zane is founder and director of Fiji Carver Limited, which is an ASX-listed company producing a range of farm-to-shelf carver, su carver supplements and complementary med medicines grown and manufactured to the highest of standards before being exported to international markets, including Australia, New Zealand and the USA and China. Trading under the Fiji Carver and Takimai brands, Fiji Carver Limited expertly modernised a 3,000-year-old Pacific tradition to meet market needs across the globe. Bula Zain. Bula Vinaka. Our third panellist joining us virtually from Fiji is Alison Howarth-West. Alison is the CEO of Captain Cook Cruises in Fiji Islands, operating four vessels on three, on three to 11 night expedition cruises, as well as day sales and sunset dinner cruises. She's also the president of the Australia Fiji Business Council, a trustee of the Lizard Island Research Foundation, and a patron of the Fiji Fashion Foundation. Alison has a degree in business management from the University of Technology in Sydney 
and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Bulavanaka, Alison, it's great to have you joining us from Fiji. And last but certainly not least is Caleb Jarvis. Caleb is the Trade and Investment Commissioner of Pacific <laughs> Trade Invest Australia, the Pacific region's leading trade and investment promotion agency. With over 25 years experience leading organisations within Australia and the Pacific, Caleb has extensive expertise in international trade, investment, labour mobility, development and business advisory. Caleb is an accredited graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has undertaken senior executive roles and board memberships across Australia and the Pacific. Friends and colleagues, please join me in welcoming the panel this evening. And for those who do not know me, I am Dr. Tess Newton-Kane. I'm a senior research fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute, where I lead the Pacific Hub, and it's my privilege to be the chair for this evening's event. So the, the format is that um, we will have two sessions of a discussion between me and the panel, and there will also be two opportunities for questions from the audience that our panel can address. <coughs> if you are joining us online, please post your questions into the chat box on Teams, and please also tell us where you are joining us from in the virtual space. Caleb, I thought we could start with you. Um, tell us about the Pacific Exporters Survey. How long has it been in, in existence? What sort of things does it cover? And who makes use of the information it collects? Uh, well, thanks, Tess. Uh, look, um, we created the export survey in about 2014. Um, it really came about because there's just a complete lack of data uh, around export and investment within the region. And so, you know, we took it upon ourselves um, to start to capture export sentiment across the region. Pacific Trade Invest works across 16 Pacific Island countries. And, you know, we're a, uh, a trade and promotion organisation and, you know, work with exporters across the region um, and, you know, try to create commercial opportunities in the Australian market. And so there's a real lack of data. So, you know, we this is now um, what we're talking about today is the fifth publication. It's a biannual review. And it's really, I think initially uh, it was about getting information back from exporters to really inform what we did as an organisation, the type of services that we could provide um, to exporters and investees in the region. Um, but as we're sort of rolled through this now for, you know, a number of years, and it is a big piece of work, I must say, for a small organisation, there's a, there's a big, um, there's a lot of heavy lifting that goes on internally. But we also partner up with Fifth Quadrant, uh, they used to be called ACA Research, and they also do a similar export survey for Austrade in Australia. So they're very proficient, they're very expert. And um, so we've got a lot out of it, and it really does shape what we do as an organisation. Um, and, you know, what we've found is that um, donors in particular get a lot of value out of this. Uh, we are constantly um, having a, a high-level dialogue with uh, particularly the Asian Development Bank. Uh, national governments also look carefully at it, and we work closely with a lot of the um, 
you know, you know um, export councils in in the countries as well, and we know that they've used this data to have conversations with government uh, about you, you know um, the opportunities, the barriers, the the trends, and the data. So you know that's just a quick snapshot of how it's come about. That's great, thank you. So, Fipe, for businesses such as yours, where you're, you know, you're looking at developing export opportunities in the Pacific Islands region, how important is this issue of data that Caleb's touched on? How important is data such as this survey or other data sources? And where do you think are the, the gaps in the data that would be of benefit to people such as yourself? Um, I think it's really important. Um, I think what is important is, I guess, the number of participants that uh, taking up in this survey. You know, there are various different layers of maturity within the export industry throughout the Pacific. So, you know, we're not really comparing apples to apples um, from island to island. Um, and it'll be really interesting in the next 5, 10, 15 years to see where a lot of those markets are going, especially with um, China's influence. Like, there'll be a huge change in markets in the Pacific. Um, as a snapshot of where the Pacific is at, I think it's the information is great, and we definitely review it from time to time. But I guess with a lineage and you know our Papa going back to the Pacific Islands, a lot of the things that were in the survey also reflect the conversations that we're having on the ground with um, with our Ainga, our family, our community, our farmers. You know, the challenges with climate change, the challenges with exporting. Um, but not just uh, exporting out of Samoa. And I guess, you know, from myself, I can only really speak about the experience I have within Samoa and cacao. Um, not just out of Samoa, but the challenges within inter-island travel mm. of cacao. Um, you know, export from island to island is extremely expensive in Samoa. Mm -hmm. um, not sure if that was captured um, in the survey. And, you know, I don't know if that, that is a gap that needs to be there either. Um, what I'd like to see more of is actually understanding if our governments are spending enough money to support the export services. You know, um, for living cocoa, we need to get to a certain kind of tonnage and a certain amount coming into Australia to, to become sustainable. We're still quite a new business. You know, we've been maybe five, six years, which is new for a startup. And uh, as a manufacturing space, a lot we're pumping in a lot of money into just you know setting up the factory itself. So we need to know. Um, let's say by next year, if we'd like to get 12 tons coming into into Melbourne, you know, can Samoa handle that? You know, do we have enough support for the cash crop farmers, um, the people on the ground that are really willing these trees to come out? You know, how, what kind of support do they have? And then also for the post-harvesting processes that happen in Savai Koko, you know, is there enough support there? Is there enough infrastructure there to handle the the demand of Australia? And also, in a way that we're still we're honouring the farmers, but we're also honouring the land. You know, we don't want to come in with a very fast approach, uh, start the monocropping and things like that, and deplete our soils. We want to make sure that everything is, you know, a circular relationship and and that what we're putting in, we're, we're getting out in, in an even way. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think we'll, you know, you've raised a couple of really important points there that I think we'll probably come back to as we move along. Alison, I'd like to come to you next, if I can. And as we know, Australia was a primary source of tourists to the Pacific 
prior to the onset of COVID-19. And obviously, we expect that that will be the case again once as the sector continues to recover. I guess what I'd be interested to learn from you or, or get some th thinking from you around is where are the opportunities for returned tourists to become a pull factor for Pacific products when they return to Australia? And what products do you think are best placed to succeed on that basis? Okay, I think you might be on mute, Alison. Can you unmute yourself? Sorry. There, that's much better. Thank you. Apologies, I thought you were doing it. Um, I, all I was saying was um, thank you and thank you for me. Sorry, I'm not there in person. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, we can. Yeah. Um, now I have to remember what you are. But um, I, I think that there are enormous opportunities, frankly. I think that the the COVID environment quite different to um, well, it's it's the same, but it's different to what it was before. I think I'm just touching, drawing reference from um, uh, Pipe's comments there in terms of um, the the importance of authenticity and and um, attention to uh, the environment and sustainability and things. I think that the the travel that's, that's leaving Australia right now is very in tune with that post COVID mentality to travel, and this is this is documented in research. You know, is looking for an authentic, real experience, and I think that flows through to what they buy, frankly, and I think it can flow through to what they buy when they return. So um, I know in our own business we have, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, a cruise ship which has a shop on it, and then we have an island that has uh, sells as merchandise as well. And when we were coming back out of COVID, we looked at what we had in our shop, and we thought, you know, we really like to launch this with local produce featuring. And I think that that reference point is 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 sort of dovetails into into this question in that. People are coming in, they want to buy things that are locally produced, and that's, that's a global trend. So if they see things, whether it's on our ship or in a hotel or in the, in the, um, in the airport, um, that then they can, when they go back, they might want to order more. Or it, creates a, um, it creates an amplification of both the destination, the experiences they had. And, you know, every tourist, a traveller, I'd like to say, really, that comes back from Fiji and the Pacific, becomes an ambassador for the destination and they they gain an affinity with the local people because of the warmth of the Pacific um, and you know it's whether it's manufactured goods on a larger scale whether it's manufactured on an artisan level whether it's sort of niche crops there's a there's enormous opportunity for that to be you know for those people to be sort of daily ambassadors I think um, in you know where, but when they get back to their home country Australia is already still, or it started off as almost the, the total, obviously, visitor arrivals when tourism opened up to Fiji. It's it's sitting around the around the 50, but under 50% now. Um, and, you know, New Zealand probably occupying slightly higher level of um, the, the breakdown um, and the Americas. But, you know, I, I think we'll see a slow resurgence to the, the, the pre-COVID levels. And um, and that just opens up enormous opportunity for for producers. So I think people, you know, and this I'm go, you know, I'm, I'm probably going a bit a bit a bit far with my answer, but I think that the you know the opportunities now with the digital environment and the the re-education of 
consumers globally around digital um, online purchasing really does open up a big opportunity for the Pacific. Bigger. That digital piece is something that we, we might come back to a bit later. But Zane, to follow up with you, so we've we've looked at returned tourists as a, a pull factor. What What's your sense of the role of Pacific and Pacifica diaspora communities as a, a pull factor for products or services from the region? Well, I guess following up uh, with Alison's uh, answer to your previous question, you know, we sell products through um, the tourist stores in Fiji, duty-free, uh, out of Fiji, and we've see, seen a, a, a strong uh, pull through those channels since the reopening of the borders post-COVID, uh, which is exciting to see. Um, and, and certainly our kava products uh, consist of uh, powders, capsules that we sell here in the Australian market as well. Um, but um, I guess referencing your Pacific Island export survey, um, particularly with the confidence of exporters uh, since the reopening of the borders, um, and uh, particularly around the agriculture sector, uh, you know, uh, innovate, in, innovative platforms such as uh, e-commerce platforms uh, and accessibility to Pacific Islanders living in Australia and beyond uh, to pull products from those various channels uh, are key for this uh, rebound uh, since the borders have reopened. Now, if I can uh, quote the Fiji Ag uh, statistics by investment Fiji in relation to exports over the last 12 months covers up uh, 11 million Fiji dollars, which is an increase of 34%. Uh, Turmeric's up 7.7 .7 million dollars, uh, which is 180, 118% increase over that period. We've also seen coconut oil and uh, ginger, for example, which is increased by 2.7 million, uh, which is a 207% increase over that period. So we're certainly uh, excited to see as a business uh, the Fiji government's announcement around the uh, progression of the industrial hemp uh, bill in country, uh, because that's another niche export potentially out of Fiji and the Pacific, uh, that Pacific diaspora can uh, look to pull through e-commerce platforms as an example. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, um, I mean, all of those products that you've mentioned are all really important ones. Some of them, yeah. you know, have, have been front of mind for some time. Some of them are new, such as the industrial hemp. But as you say, some really important opportunities. And I guess, Caleb, to come, I might get you to just briefly give us an insight as to the role of an organisation such as yours in hearing these things and thinking, OK, well, what needs to be in place? Not necessarily for you to put in place, but when you're talking to governments and uh, the ADB and whoever else saying to them, you know, this is what's happening. This is what, what people want to grow, but this is not necessarily growing the ground, but this is, these are the businesses they want to grow. But there's parallel infrastructure requirements there, whether it's better connectivity with an undersea cable, whether it's uh, correspondent banking facilities, whether it's domestic infrastructure as well as, you know, getting it out of the country. How how does your organisation and, and your partners, how do you take those conversations forward? Yeah, uh, big, a very big question. Thanks, Tess. Um, yeah, look, our organisation, we, 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 
initially looked to the research, um, but we have we've existed for 43 years, so we do have some really great networks um, across Australia, across the diaspora. Uh, across the 16 countries that we work within as well. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the diaspora because what we're seeing at the moment is um, is that the, the Pacific Island communities in Australia is one of the fastest demogra- demographics, growing demographics in Australia at the moment. And these communities are growing. They have a voice. That voice is getting louder and that... Um, People are listening and politicians are listening as well. Um, last week, we hosted a dele- uh, trade and investment mission from Fiji and they um, came to Sydney and Brisbane. And um, I think the highlight for me was when we connected with the diaspora, uh, particularly in Western Sydney. There's something like 60,000 Fijians living in Western Sydney now. And what we know is that they understand the Pacific um, better than anybody else. they their um, intergenerational connections, they understand the culture. Uh, a lot of those uh, people have been really successful in their businesses. And what we're seeing now is there's a real desire to um, give back to their countries and their communities to uh, invest their money as well. Um, in fact, you know, in terms of investment attraction, which is a big part of our business, working and targeting um, that diaspora group is is um, a big priority for us. When we look at the products that are available for export out of the region, we've been very um, supply-driven for a long time. In fact, we've just gone through a review with um, DFAT in terms of, um, you know, our, our future thinking as well. And, and this came up as well to say, well, look, we've serviced the existing export exporting community pretty well um, and we've got offices in New Zealand, Australia, uh, China, Japan, we've got a trade commissioner in Europe and we're servicing those markets but what we need to do better is actually <coughs> work and see where the opportunities are in these markets and um, you know have you know bigger businesses invest back into the region and start to uh, grow and create products that um that there is strong demand for as well. Um, and I think that's going to be critical for the for the region moving forward is that we sort of start to look at it through a different lens. There's There's been some great examples over time of that happening, but I actually think, again, that needs to be reprioritised. Um, the Looking at the survey and looking at the past surveys, there's definitely... Um, an appetite to do more online, uh, to look at e-commerce channels. And the first part of that is that we have to uh, equip uh, Pacific Island businesses with the knowledge to actually trade online. And so we've been rolling out a lot over the last two and a half years since COVID. If, If there was one positive to come from COVID for us is that we saw that the Pacific really engaged digitally in a way that they hadn't before because they really had to. And it happened really well. And we've been able to use technology to um, upskill businesses and individuals across the region in digital marketing, in digital tourism and and getting them ready in digital trade uh, and e-commerce. And we've we've been um, so impressed with the huge numbers of people that sign up for our webinars as well. 
And, you know, these pieces of research that we do, we, you know, there's two major pieces. We do the Pacific Export Survey and the Pacific Business Monitor. And that that research sort of really underpins what we do. And we have an obligation to strengthen the business enabling environment back in the Pacific as well. And we need the data and we need the research to start having those conversations with government. So it's it's with government, it's at a provincial state level sometimes, it's at a national level, it's it's just trying to use that data to influence and, and have uh, good quality conversations. Great. Thank you. Um, lots lots to draw on there and, and, you know, I mean, I think all, I think we need to sort of state now that this is very much a conversation starter, this whole thing, and I think there's going to be a whole bunch of things that will come out from the expertise that we have gathered that can that can be carried forward into other things. If I can come back to you, one of the one of the things that came out of the survey was significant challenges, including costs of exporting and challenging export logistics, which you know you've already touched on, and also the impacts of extreme weather events. So I wonder if you can maybe explore that for us in a little more detail and tell us a bit more about what are the main challenges that exporters are facing in Samoa that you're aware of. And what steps are they taking to overcome them? Um, I guess I'll for myself, um, I started off as a very unexperienced exporter. <laughs> so where I should have, I, I wish I had had the education to start with and the knowledge on, on how to export. And I find that that is a huge frustration with um, a lot of our people back home that feel that they have a product and they're um at the point of being export ready, but they don't have the knowledge and the experience behind them on how to export, um, you know, or the charges that come when the when your shipment has landed in the next country or things like that. You know, someone's nodding and like, we know, hey, <laughs> those bills come through, right? Um, so starting with um, that, I think that's a huge frustration and something that you know, it's an opportunity to to teach up and coming exporters back home, but then there's the frustrations of now as a experienced um, exporter. Um, I thought I thought getting to a point of shipping a container would be um, would support us in getting our costs down, um, and it probably would have two years ago post COVID, but. This time last year, you could get a shipment from Samoa to Melbourne for about five and a half thousand. Um, we had a sh- our very first container arrive last week for twelve thousand. So the cost that we thought we were going to save in getting that container has just increased like a hundred percent. Which, unfortunately, you know, um, besides from you know decreasing our profit margins. Where, where do we put those costs? You know, mm. Do we pass that back on to the customers? Do we pass it to the retail shops that are purchasing our goods? Um, through COVID, there was an increase in people um, at home online purchasing chocolate. You know, there was a, for some families, there was the disposable income to really understand the stories of the products that they wanted to purchase. Um, now with petrol prices going up, things like that, uh, our Online sales, direct-to-consumer sales have decreased. Over the last month, we've had four 
for retailers that deal with locally made produce, close their doors. You know, there's changes within our market space as we mm. get out of COVID as well. So, you know, there's challenges in exporters as in like the costs, but then there's also if people on this side say, well, you know, if we, we can't pass on the cost to our consumers, you know, how do we absorb it ourselves? And through Living Cocoa, it was making sure we used all the components of the bean um, from making cacao husk tea to different body scrubs and things like that, ensuring that, you know, any kind of byproduct that we came across was an opportunity to, you know, make another product or collaborate with another company and try and get creative in that space. Mm. Um, but also, you know, we're a small business. There's two or three people running around trying to do and trying to look big, <laughs> trying to look big so we can get, you know, the big contracts. But there's only a couple of people behind the slate, scenes working 24 hours a day. Yeah, so that that brings with it itself, you know, there's that need to prioritise. Where do you apply the energy? Where do you apply the time and the other resources? But adverse weather is a serious problem in the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As a business, if I can continue that, Tess, you know, we've had to have uh, really strong uh, geographic spread across Fiji with our supply chain based on experiences we faced during uh, Cyclone Winston, as an example, in 2016. Uh, we had focused primarily primarily on the Lomaiviti group. And when Cyclone Winston came through, it completely devastated the kava supply chain in Lomaiviti. So we had to rebuild our supply chain relationships <coughs> over a long period of time. And given that kava is a you know a three to five year crop uh, to harvest, um, it uh, has significant impact. And those type of impacts can be devastating for startup businesses like ours. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the key things that came out of the survey was um, the, that increase in businesses that felt that dealing with severe weather impacts was was much more of a challenge than maybe it had been when the survey was done last. Mm-hmm. Alison, just to follow up on that, in terms of addressing the sorts of challenges that, that we've heard raised, where do you see the responsibilities lying? What, what's, what, what's the job of the government? What's the job of... of are actors in the private sector? What, if any, is the role for development partners? How, where do you see these various um, the, the, these various responsibilities? Where do they lie? Can you hear me? We can. I, I think they lie. Um, they lie in all those areas uh, in, in different ways. So, you know. Every government in each of the Pacific Islands has a different um, makeup and a different set of strategies and policies, and so it's 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 sort of difficult to comment uh, uniformly across the board. However, on on the on the overall uh, best way forward, if you like, I mean the reality of certainly in tourism, the success of tourism is based around good public public private partnership. If you look at successful uh, tourism uh, country, countries that have been successful in tourism around the world and in terms of marketing, it's often that that underpins a lot of the success. And that that you can apply across all the all different industries. So uh, addressing the first point first, government. Well, how can government help to assist um, export and growth in export industries, they can have good government policy, basically. I mean, it's a sort of an obvious statement, but they can set businesses up for success with good tax policy, good um, um, incentives, uh, you know, 
various types of policy related to making business easy to do, which is, let's face it, it's not always, you know, the, the Pacific Islands don't always rank high on the ease of doing business rankings around the world. So that's that's often can be quite a strong impediment. So I think there's a role for government, which is really big in setting business up for success. And it goes it goes to all levels from from the bottom through to the top, all different policy areas. And you could go on for a long time talking about it. But I think, you know, some, as I said, some countries in the Pacific are more proactive in this area than others. But the one, you know, the, the more government can see themselves as a partner to business, the more successful business will be and the country will be. And then the more prosperous the people and, um, you know, the better the the uh, the services, etc. Um, so, you know, the government can't control the weather, sadly. <laughs> so that's just a reality. And so that's just one policy area. You know, if if the government of the country can have good policy around disaster management, um, and good resources. Well, that's good. And that's where foreign governments can come in and do come in. And I know that the Australian government particularly has been very supportive in the Pacific in recent years with, you know, disaster relief and so on. So that there can be great relationships there that can help um, countries get through, but it is, it's a reality. So then if you move on to the supplier or the producer, they, they that's, that's where, for example, you know, Zane stepped up and said, okay, well, I can't control the weather, so I'm going to have to diversify where I source my carver from, because otherwise, you know, I can't just sit here and say, well, this is a problem. I've got to find a solution. So that's the sort of nimble business practice that will produce more sustainable businesses across across different parts of the Pacific. And it, it's, as it, it's as, as Felipe said, it's it's about being nimble and coming up with new ideas and innovating. So if you if you want to encapsulate it into one message for, for the producer, how can they be the most successful? It's to innovate. Um, it's to always think up a new idea. I was I was um, listening to a podcast of Steve Bezos the other day, and he, 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 he put the view forward that, um, sorry about that, that the, that, oh dear, this is the problem of COVID, you see. Um, that, <laughs> I wonder if that'll go away. That the, um, uh, that, that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are endlessly curious. That, that is, I might take a break and let somebody else make a remark so I can get rid of that noise. How about that? I'll be back with you in a minute. Video, so we are about to move into our first QA session. So, again, for those of you that are joining us online, please put your questions into the chat box so that we can make sure you we hear from you as well. Um, but we'll start by I'm happy to open up to questions and answers now, or, or questions from you, answers from the panel. Please introduce yourself before you ask your question when I call on you. And um, the room is mic'd, so you just need to elevate and project. We don't need to bring a microphone to you. So does anybody have a question that they would like to ask? Yeah. Uh, Graham Kerridge from the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Um, obviously, the, the Pacific has many unique uh, features and unique challenges in terms of, of uh, development uh, for trade. Um, but are there any lessons from elsewhere around the world? And I'm thinking of possibly the Caribbean uh, is one area that has some of the features of the Pacific, but that obviously is very different in other ways. 
are there lessons to be learned uh, from other places? Kevin, would you yeah, like I'll, to I'll jump on, on that. that. Thanks, thanks, Graham. Uh, look, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to someone the other day uh, about Mauritius in particular, because Mauritius, uh, being a small, smaller island state, have completely um, have a one one e-government approach, you know, so they've actually been incredibly efficient at delivering government services through digital transformation and digital innovation. And they've invested in, they've created an environment which is um, ripe for investment and has gone on to attract good investment and create really good industries as well. And, and I, I think often around the Pacific, we look at Mauritius as being a little bit of a best practice practice example of what can be done through good policy and, and good governance and those sort of things as well. As a trade promotion organisation, uh, Pacific Trade Invest is very unique where we actually uh, represent 16 um, sovereign entities. The only other organisation like that in the world is in the Caribbean. So us as an organisation, we only have one like organisation on the on the planet, and that's uh, CARICOM in the Caribbean as well. And again, when you look at the Caribbean, and um, in in younger years when I had hair, I actually sailed around the Caribbean and raced yachts, and uh, it was it was rather lovely. And um, what I can say is that the Caribbean has been established for a lot longer and is um, not as isolated as the Pacific Islands are as well. So they have access to international markets and, and bigger markets as well. You know, when you look at the Pacific, um, some of the most isolated countries in the world, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand are, are fundamental to um, the products uh, that are exported, goods and services. But even the Australian and New Zealand marketplaces are incredibly small. Uh, so, again, you know, when we talk about cacao, um, a lot of those markets for, for cow and, and more bulk stuff goes to North America and North Europe. That's often through uh, Singapore, Malaysia, through different factories and stuff on the way through as well. So, yes, to your point, absolutely, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and I'm often saying in terms of e-government -gov e work, we don't need every country to go and develop their own architecture around foreign attraction or delivering government services. You know, can we not learn from Mauritius, adopt what they have, and then deploy the same technology and approach across 16 countries versus each time, starting from the beginning, doing the research piece, calling for the consultants and the tenders and, and doing all of that work before you actually start to move to deployment. Sadly, we, we, we don't with each country um, and they have their right to do it um, independently um, one at a time. But uh, I think that's a, that there is a good opportunity there maybe for international donors who can fund a lot of this work to, to, to do that um, you know, more effectively as is done in other parts of the world. Then what about you? I know you're, uh, you know, you're often looking outwards to see how different people are operating. What, what's your sense of 
what there is to learn from elsewhere in the world that could be applied in relation to Pacific export and well, exports? I, I guess our, our remoteness in the Pacific is a huge disadvantage, uh, especially in an environment where we have increasing costs uh, with logistics. We have, you know, fuel costs rising. Um, it's a huge challenge. Um, you know, and Australia traditionally has been a, a major trading partner for Pacific Islands, uh, but but certainly. Um, I've seen uh, data to show that China is uh, now uh, surpassed uh, you know, Australia in terms of uh, trade volumes, both import and export uh, from the Pacific, uh, which is concerning. I mean, we've seen some of the geopolitical uh, issues uh, rise uh, as a result of um, those type of things. You know, we've seen that in the Solomon Islands, et cetera. But I think the remoteness um, in the Pacific's a huge uh, obstacle for trade for, for us. So certainly I was happy to see in the uh, survey that uh, there's been a pivot into the Middle East, for example, from Asia, you know, so where perhaps uh, products like ours or products uh, um, like yours, uh, FIPE, uh, can demand a higher price and sustain the increased costs uh, because of our remoteness and, uh, you know, logistics, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly does speak to all of those issues around price point, around, you know, low volume, high return, rather than necessarily bulk products that they, that can't absorb Correct. those extra costs, like as the premium products can. We do have a question, which is from Richard Etherington, and I don't know if Richard's in Solomon Islands, but it does relate to Solomon Islands. He says, there's no LCL shipping from Solomon Islands, um, and it would make a great project to have the Australian government underwrite LCL <coughs> for a period of time and enable smaller businesses to access the Australian market. And this connects with a previous question from Elijah Harrow, which I think was coming back to your point, Fipe, about consolidation with other exporters mm -hmm. into, into, to mitigate some of those costs, uh, uh, cost implications. Now, up until quite recently, we wouldn't have considered whether the Australian government might like to skew the market and intervene in what is essentially a private capital mechanism. But Telstra and Digicel have just put paid to all of that thinking. <laughs> so um, is is that an appropriate role for the Australian government to be providing that sort of subsidy in order to um, assist smaller businesses to get access to export markets? Fipe, is that something that you think would be welcomed in the Samoan context? Or oh, yeah. Pay <laughs> <laughs> for exports? Yeah, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not talking about paper, well, it's talking about underwriting it, so it's not quite <laughs> the same, I don't think. Um, yeah, I think that would um, be really supportive, especially for LCL. Like, it's a lot more expensive, um, loose cargo, than getting a full container. Um, having the right people on the ground in the export industry, in the islands, and also within the country that you're exporting to is really important, though. Um, you know, understanding all the costs that are involved as well, um, but any kind of support that can help. Um, you know, why not? Why why don't we change it? We, we give funding, you know, um, governments give funding to uh, support the agriculture, the um, post-harvesting processes, things like that, you know, why can't it be a, a womb-to-tomb kind of uh, project? Okay. Now, I know there has there was a freight package in connection with COVID that I think PTI 
yep. was a key player in. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Caleb? There's a number of different freight assistant packages during the the the, the, the highlights of COVID, the Australian government were underwriting the cost of planes going in to provide essential goods and 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 personnel. Um, that happened as well. But also, uh, and hi, Richard and Elijah, great that you're listening in. Um, we, Pacific Trade Invest runs a freight assistance package and it's a $2,500 Australian grant um, and it, and it really came about because of the feedback we got through the export survey and also directly from the exporters that we work with. And, you know, we normally wouldn't do that sort of thing, but the the voice was so loud that, you know, we had to uh, react to that and, and provide more tangible and practical support. So we created this Friday System package. <coughs> you know, I've been around for a little while and it's probably the, the most successful um, thing that we've ever done at Pacific Trade Invest. It was the right intervention at the right time. Um, I have a background in shipping as well, and LCL cargo is necessary for um, smaller exporters or for smaller shipments. There are other issues with LCL cargo, and that's that often that they are double handled. Um, they are therefore open to um, damage or at loss and theft a lot more. And it's also more inefficient because, you know, it's sort of sometimes uh, containers getting unpacked and rejigged and, and and there are challenges with that. But again, uh, I would be supportive of any donors' um, support to um, subsidise that. Where does that sit on the priority tree? I'm not sure. Um, again, I think that there's a general increasing need for um, the governments, um, national and donors, to support SMEs from the Pacific better than has been done in the past. And I think what we learned through COVID now needs to, um, you know, sort of become standard practice. And I think we need to double down on that effort because the cost of shipping, what is happening in fee-pays um, example, double the freight rate and the shipping routes aren't as efficient as they used to be. That's a game changer. That can erode all the profit. That can um, take away your 100% of your comparative advantage in, in, in key markets as well. So, again, um, that is the big elephant in the room, that if um, those freight rates don't and and other, other input costs don't sort of come under control, then a lot of Pacific Island products are going to struggle to be competitive in, you know, in, in international markets. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think I think it's really interesting the point that you've raised and, and this, you know, I mean we could take we could apply that to a whole bunch of conversations about the Pacific, but about this, as you said, the need to double down on something tangible that that business can actually say, yes, that, that made that difference to our bottom line so we were able to take on three new employees or or whatever um as opposed to maybe what previously you and i have talked about which has been more around um you know changing policy levers or you know improving the legislation and things like that in that sort of more business environment place but in terms of businesses, they need to be able to point to something much more tangible. And Tess, can I just add one more thing? Um, 
most Pacific Islands import a lot of their, their consumables into the country. So a lot of the containers go out on these ships empty. And so I've always struggled with the fact that we uh, exporters have to pay so much for a box when there are so many boxes coming out completely empty. And, the, yeah. you know, it's almost like the shipping companies are, um, are trying to recover some of the costs of shipping back an empty container on the mm-hmm. exporters that actually are shipping goods. So, again, it's, it's not a slide on the shipping companies, but there's just not enough volume of product coming out of the Pacific to offset the volume that's coming into the Pacific. And, and that comes back to a, you know, a massive trade deficit yeah. in volume and in, in dollars in most Pacific Island countries. And then you're kind of in this like endless feedback loop because then that pushes the use of LCL and then that yeah. gets you back to where we were. Just um, we've got here from... Sorry, we've got a couple of things here. Mm-hmm. There we go. So we've got here from James Harner. We are currently trialling a pilot LCL initiative in Solomon Islands in sharing container space for premium sun-dried beans to boutique chocolate market. This includes a digital e-platform to share information along the supply chain, making it efficient and simpler. So we'll take that as a comment, but it does go to show that this is a very much a live issue in, yeah. in numerous, numerous markets. Um, and I think one of the things that that struck me when we were talking about that was the importance of trust in in all these stages of the relationships. And you know, you were saying it, there's there's problems about theft, there's problems about did it actually get on the boat or whatever. You know, sort of. I remember you know listening to Scott Wider tell me about sweet potato coming from the highlands and the different steps that it goes and people traveling with the goods to make sure that they got to gordon's market or whatever Mm. Um, and then a bit further on from so we've got richard wanting to know more about that and then Mm. richard says fcl is not more economical if you only have a couple of pallets to move just need a warehouse and an agent willing to manage lcl and then regular shipments can get to market. Well, that kind of touches on what we've already talked about. And then again from Elijah, Caleb, if several exporters consolidated, would that be taken as one or each of the few? Say six pallets of oh, this sounds like a mass problem. <laughs> farmers, would that be six or one? We might leave you to follow up with Elijah separately. Yeah, Elijah, on that one. call, call me. Call, call, love to, love yeah, to talk. Just please, yeah. you know, please fill up your Okay, any, we've, I think we've got one time for one last question in this session, but we will have another round of Q&A a bit later on. So you, this is your last opportunity. Yeah. I'm Rukesh from Smudger. So my question, uh, there's a comment there as well in the beginning. So the comment I would say, and, and maybe um, Captain Cook Cruises is an ideal solution to this inter-island shipping. And the costs associated with it, we do transport tourists, but is there a space where they could transport goods as well, which is a business model with some airlines use anyway? So would there be opportunity to reduce the cost as such? So maybe it's food for thought there. But I guess uh, talking about shipment and the cost of shipment is a major issue. Either you are importing, if you look from Australia's point of view, importing from the Pacific or exporting out of Australia as well, either way, cost factor is there. So I guess uh, the question is, um, should we have a dedicated, should we come up and innovate a dedicated Pacific shipping line instead of relying on the bigger global shipping entities like Maersk and all of them? 
should we look at an alternative? See, I feel really old now. Yeah. Because I. Me, me too. Yeah, yeah. I, because I remember <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when we had were, exactly were, that. Yeah, there was. The ill-fated Pacific, Pacific Forum, Forum line. line. Yeah, and that's where the Pacific Island countries did get around and had their own shipping line. And again, it wasn't sustainable in the sense that they're shipping around, you know, moving ships around that weren't fully loaded. Um, and then just slowly after years and decades, it sort of got privatised and then became something else. Um, so this is a long-standing issue. I think that's that's the point. And when we talk about high freight costs, you know, this just isn't a Pacific Islands issue. This is a global issue. Um, and it is acute in the Pacific. They call it, from a shipping perspective, the end of the line, that the Pacific doesn't get the priority. It all comes and transships through either Singapore, Auckland or, you know, Brisbane and, and Sydney, and then it goes to the end of the line and then those ships don't go back. They sort of come back the other way. And that's why the Pacific is experiencing some of the highest costs, shipping costs in, in the world. As, um, but, look, it's having a massive inflationary impact across the globe and, and we hear about that on the news every day and it's not going to get solved for a while because they stopped actually making ships as well in the lead up to COVID it wasn't profitable so actually the problem is now all the way back that they need more ships and they need you can't get 20 foot containers as well at the moment so it's just so so complicated yeah it's way above my pay grade there's lots of smart people working on this. Alison, do you want to comment briefly on um, the idea of using your lovely cruise boats to move move goods around the Fiji Islands? Um, actually, you are onto something in that we do do it to a certain degree. Um, the, you know, we, through our, on Reef Endeavour, at least um, through the various itineraries, we cover 90 of Fiji's 333 islands so quite a, we cover a lot of space right up to the north and out to um out to uh the, you know as far as the Lao group right out into the Lao group so actually we don't do it on a commercial level but it is quite a nice story and that we do well, particularly when we go to the Lao we load up with supplies and and we take um you know they they really don't get a lot of contact out there so we take a lot of things out to the Lao when we go which is good we also in theme with what I said before, we purposefully, can you hear me? We purposefully, um, you know, when we, we go around to the to the local producers, the woodcarvers and the artisans, and we buy um, produce from them that we then also sell in, in our shops. So it, we see that as a great way to support um, support the local communities and help foster foster their uh, their, their situation. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 very remote and I, I think you know the the challenges of of shipping and and moving things around is well we we know as we've it's been discussed as already very clearly that it is one of the the great challenges. I mean one good news story and I, I slightly digress but during COVID we did a fundraiser we did a couple of fundraisers but one of them we did. Um, in conjunction with Rotary and we went out to our past passengers and various people and we raised a really significant amount of money and we purchased a whole pile of supplies and we took them up through the Asawas and the Mamanuthas and um and provided you know dry goods and food to the um to the local communities which was really good so we're we're we're, we're doing it but uh 
not in not in the not in the commercial sense. <laughs> have lived and worked and run business in the Pacific. No, you need to be able to um, apply things in in more than one way. It's 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 a bit of a luxury to have a, an asset that only does one thing. Generally, you need to think about how can you get more of a return and, and the sorts of things that Alison's talking about. Okay, so we, like I say, we will have another opportunity for some questions. So please do keep thinking of your questions and please put them into the chat um, so that we can come back to them. So I might start with you, Zane. Just sort of zooming out a bit, how important do you think trade between Australia and the Pacific Islands region is to contributing to stronger relationships? You, you touched, yeah, touched earlier on the, the, the geopolitical area. issues, yeah. but where does trade, and particularly buying stuff from the Pacific, where does that fit in building relationships between Australia and Pacific Island countries? Well, Australia traditionally has been uh, the largest trading partner for the Pacific Islands. But like, like I said earlier, I think China has now stepped up to uh, overtake Australia in that regard. Um, so certainly, um, you know, um, the opening of the doors, for example, with the Kava import trials, which I'll touch on uh, later on, um, is certainly a, a welcome initiative by the Australian government, um, you know, after uh, pushing um, and lobbying for this to happen for so many years now. Um, in addition to that, you know, the um, I guess the consolidation of the uh, Pacific uh, Labor and Seasonal Worker Program into Palm now um, is another welcome initiative uh, for Pacific Islands um, and Pacific Islanders looking to move into Australia, uh, given uh, you know the importance of remittances from Australia back into uh, the Pacific. Uh, you know, there's a statistic that I reviewed earlier that I discussed with you, uh, Tess. Um, I think in 2019, uh, remittances to Fiji uh, amounted to 400 million Aussie dollars. You know, so that's significant. Um, so certainly there can be a lot more that can be done by Australia to improve uh, trade relations with uh, um, the Pacific Islands. And by far, uh, Fiji and Papua New Guinea account for you know, 88% of that volume in the Pacific Islands. Um, so I guess, how, how do we um, look at a more inclusive uh, trade with other Pacific Island countries outside of Fiji and Papua New Guinea as well, uh, with various initiatives at play at the moment, I think is really important, uh, especially given the geopolitical issues mm -hmm. at play. So Caleb, based on what, um, sorry, I need to put my glasses on to read this question. What, just to draw a bit more on what Zane said, and, and also what you've got, what's in this survey, what does that tell us about the future of Pacific exports to Australia? And I'm going to add on to that question is like, what do we need to do or do we need to do anything about building um, what I sometimes refer to as Pacific literacy in Australia? So, for example, building that sense and awareness in the Australian market that there are good things in the Pacific to buy and that it's, you know, get on board with buying them. How do, you know, where, where does it fit into that bigger picture? 
Yeah, I think that's a two-way conversation. I think the Pacific also need to make sure they're able to um, create, uh, produce and deliver quality products that, that are yep. consistent and, and that meet a particular price point. Um, and because of the high shipping cost, there are products that um, that are sort of getting priced out a little bit. But, you know, I'm I'm seeing more Pacific products in Australia than I've ever seen before, you know, and, and I, I can walk into Coles now and I see um, coconuts, I won't say from where, it's, you know, top secret, but coconuts from the Pacific, um, Fiji carver on the shelf, um, you know, virgin coconut oil as well. So, you know, there's there's definitely more happening, but there is there is a bit of a, a still a, a disconnection. We know that from a tourism perspective, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, that um, you, you, Fiji in particular is still you, you know in the top ten of destinations of for Australian travellers. So we have a, a tourism connection, but we don't have a cultural. Um, people-to-people connection. But as I said before, the diaspora in Australia is rapidly growing and so there is a connection. And and so I think one of the big solutions and the new government, and I'm very apolitical, but the the new government and and what they've done in a very short period of time, they're showing leadership on uh, on the climate crisis and the Pacific really appreciates that. they're making moves to open up the labour market in Australia as well. And, you know, I've done quite a lot of work in that space and um, we need to keep challenging the Australian government and also the Pacific Island governments to keep cracking that open. We need, we've got chronic labour shortages across Australia in every town, in every, every city, in every sector. Um, and there's, you know, great Pacific Island workers who would love to come and do some of that work. But I've got to emphasise it's got to be good workers doing good work in Australia as well. It needs to be respectful and they should be given rights to Medicare and they should be able to bring their families and, and um, you know, participate in society. And because what we've learned is Pacific Islanders generally have such a deep connection to home. They want to go back to the Pacific and... Um, there's so much to gain from that. And so I think to build the connection between the Pacific and uh, Australia and, and New Zealand is through the opening up that labour market. So there's a much freer movement of naturalised people across our region. And um, until that happens, I think we'll be, we're going to, we're not going to you know, make huge progress on that front. Although the the leadership on on climate change uh, from the Australian government is is a um, has been a big issue, and that's definitely I think um, the the narrative has completely changed. It's looking positive. Let's give it some time as well. Okay, great. Thank you, Alison. I might come back to you now. Um, and just to follow on from the tourism piece, and obviously this is very much at the heart of your your business. So as we've already touched on, tourism is restarting in Fiji, Vanuatu, Cook Islands and other Pacific Island countries. Based on, you know, what you're thinking and hearing uh, within the industry, do you think it's going to go back to how it was before or is it going to look different? And if so, what what's going to be different about it? Well, I think um, I did a, did a, can you hear me? 
I did allude to this uh, a little earlier uh, that it 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 is this it's same same but different. So it's it's all it's coming back. Um, things are looking toward you know the proportions of visitor arrivals from various countries heading back to the original proportions that they were before 2019. The numbers look like they're heading in that direction to by 2024 to surpass that. Um, but the traveler is 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 different. The market has changed. You know, in tourism, the market always changes week to week, month to month, year to year. The nature of the traveler, the nature of the psychology of the purchase decision and the experience that people want to have when they go to any given country, it, it's constantly changing. But the difference here is we've had a two year gap. So that's something in itself. And in addition to that, you've had a massive societal shift and change people are people are different they've been locked down they've gone through a pandemic they've felt frightened they've got anxiety so they need to have some of um, uh, Zane's carver for example to help them sleep um, but in all seriousness they they are a different that globally people are different they can't help but be have been changed by what's happened in the last two years so how does that affect tourism into the Pacific well um, very fundamentally, people the, the people's travel desires, as I said before, have changed. Um, there's there's a there's a really sort of there's a there's quite a big matrix of all the different factors. The, the first thing that's happened is people have money that they've got in their pocket that they haven't spent on stuff. So their their propensity to spend is there. In addition, the prices are higher for various reasons of supply and demand and other things. Um, the, the numbers have come, obviously, firstly came, and I'm talking mostly about Fiji here. So they the numbers have been growing very strongly from opening um, in December. And I think in May, I know in June, it was up to 62,000, which is 73% of 2019 arrivals. So, you know, that's significant um, in itself. The breakdown of that's 54% Australia, 24% New Zealand, and 13% the US, which is not exactly like it was before, but similar. I mean, if to give you an idea, in 2019 it, that we had about um, 850,000 visitors in Fiji um, and 37,000 a week air capacity per week, that seats. We're now at 11,000. But you know, keeping that in mind, it it's been growing like that, and it will continue to go to go. So they're expecting by 2024 for it to surpass. Okay, so that's the basic numbers. Is it coming back? Yes, it's already come back. Um, the hotels are running at 90% occupancy, or or high occupancy, I should say, and 90% of the hotels are open. So that's all looking good. Now, what are the tourists or travellers thinking? How are they feeling? Well, all the research indicates that they're looking for, as I indicated before authentic um, experiences that will sort of make them feel different when they leave. Um, they want to feel touched. They want to have a pleasant, enjoyable experience, an immersive experience. They want to do things. Um, there's a there's a certainly an element of the flop and fly and <laughs> fly and flop that was a big part of previous visitation to Fiji, but it's shifted away. And I think Interestingly, the marketing strategy that Tourism Fiji have now correlates with that. And that also correlates, to be honest, with our, I mean, to be frank, I, whether by act or design, our whole strategy with our own company is exactly matching with the post-COVID travel because we do authentic experiences to remote destinations. I mean, it's it's a match and Tourism Fiji are now 
heavily on that strategy as well. Now, if you take that into Australia and you take a whole big population of tourism purchasers who are looking about to see where they're going to go first. Well, when Fiji opened up first ahead of a lot of other international destinations, of course, a lot of them chose it. That trickle down and that, that, that uh, what do you want to call it, a hangover will continue further because there's a proportion of people in the in that travel sector that don't want to go to Africa for the next five years or they actually don't want to go to Europe for the next five or America or even Bali or wherever. And there's, you know, t- the tourism market is made up of many different segments, price points, desires, psychographics, whatever. But the first thing that happened when Fiji opened was the front of the plane filled first, the more expensive host- hotels filled first. And a lot of people who would hadn't thought of going to Fiji for years or had never been to Fiji, all of a sudden were coming to Fiji. And a lot of those people are experienced travellers who are looking for, you know, richer, deeper experiences. So I think that the, the net effect is that where does it leave the Pacific in terms of the nature of the type of traveller that's going there and, and, and the opportunity to develop product and infrastructure there that has a, a, a bigger dimension? And this dovetails back to the original conversation about merchandise because that's part of it and, you know, locally produced artisan products. I think it's enormous and I think it's really fabulous. It's like a gift that's come out of COVID, this refreshed market, broadened market, um, more people coming of more diverse backgrounds. And and I think there'll be, as I said, that lag of, of people who actually for a few years might not want to go and do those long trips, but they're happy to travel to the Pacific. It's full of friendly, welcoming people. It's clean. It's safe. It's happy. It's a happy place. So you've been stuck in lockdown. You're anxious. You just, you know, and you arrive and you get off the plane and someone smiles at you. I mean, I think that's a bit of a winning combination and that usually the sun's shining. So so um, that's if if that's not a positive message, I think, you know, I hope. I hope. How that applies in some of the smaller markets like uh, maybe Vanuatu, Samoa, Tonga that have maybe not been as front of mind for people. And I also think one of the things which we're not going to have time to touch on but will come up is is what it means in terms of cruise ship tourism, which for some markets such as Vanuatu was such a big part of the mix. But unfortunately, Cable, if I'm now going to ask you to give us what is probably going to be a somewhat gloomy, gloomier picture. You've touched on already the, the impact of global, global events and shifts, whether it's COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, the latest predictions by the IMF. How... How do those events affect Pacific exporters? Are our exporters more susceptible than exporters elsewhere in the world? Are there some shocks and events that they are somehow protected from? What? How do we? How do we in the Pacific um, interact with what's going on in the global space? Yep. Uh, good question. Thanks. Um, yeah, that, look, we certainly are all living in challenging times. Um, and look, I remember when we went through the global financial crisis that that really, um, you know, was a was a pretty impactful thing negatively across the whole globe. But but it didn't affect the Pacific Islands in the same way as it, it affected other people, uh, other other countries and other other regions as well. And this is 
different. You know, we've, it's like a, a cluster of issues, uh, you know, and again, you know, let's – I want to highlight we're in the midst of a climate crisis. You know, I don't think we've talked about that enough. And when we started this survey, we didn't ask questions about weather and natural disasters. Um, midway through, we it's a bit dynamic, so we started asking questions. And, you know, the, this year, 72% of businesses, of exporters that were surveyed had been impacted by natural disasters. And, look, I think if you ask that question to New South Wales businesses, you might actually get a similar sort of statistic. Um, and, you know, if you asked in California and, and Greece, you know, so that's a big issue. Inflation's going to continue to be a problem, um, but that, that, that will get addressed in time as well. But, look, um, when we ask exporters uh, these questions, they're generally pretty optimistic and that's the great thing that always comes out of these surveys, just how resilient and optimistic Pacific Islanders generally are, I think. Um, when we look at when I look at the stats, um, you know, 70 percent of exporters are looking to expand their product range and expand their markets. Sixty nine percent of businesses are anticipating an increase in revenue. Uh, I suppose that's to be ex expected coming off a low base. Um, 83% of businesses, like a lot of businesses, um, believe that they're going to build back stronger. Um, so, again, very optimistic as well. And, look... Do you think that's well-placed optimism? Um, well, yes and no. Um, and, and I'll share a story with you this morning, which really um, it was heartening, I think, Um the first part of the story is pretty negative because I realised um, that however it happened that Qantas had managed to cancel my ticket to fly here to be on this panel. So I almost <laughs> didn't get here. Um, so 9.30 panic stations. Um, last time I had to call Qantas to change a flight that you couldn't do online, um, it, I had to wait for three hours and 46 minutes to actually talk to a person. I thought, oh, my God, like, I'm going to – the flight's going to go before I can actually get on the plane. I'll just go to the airport. And, and uh, anyway, so I thought, no, I'll call. I got straight through to someone. And I listened to this person for about 15 seconds, and this person was rolling their arse. And I, I said to the lady, I said, oh, you in Fiji? I, I actually said, uh, Yandra, meaning good morning in Fijian. And she's like – on the spot, I can feel her sort of go. Hang on, I'm not supposed to tell people where I'm based, and <laughs> and, um, and and so we worked out the problem. And I said, "So are you based in Suva?" She said, "Yes." I said, "Are you in the Mine Pearl facility?" She said, "Yes." She said, "Are you stalking me?" What's going on here? Um, but look, you know, we're pretty immersed in the environment um, and the BPO sector and, and the call centre market, and I didn't know Mine Pearl had got Qantas. And so Qantas are running their call centre, well, part of it, like they've got tens of thousands of workers all over the place, but because of COVID, They've brought um, they've brought some of those services back, and they've looked around. Where can we have? They need risk mitigation. Um, Fiji has great redundancy on different sea cables for connectivity, and there is whole new sectors that I that we are seeing happening across the region. And other countries are looking at. I know Samoa is looking at. It, I know Tonga talk about it. So. 
there is it's not misplaced optimism because in country they are the people are seeing changes and new sectors pop up that didn't exist before and whilst i'm talking there is a massive opportunity for the pacific to become global experts in carbon capture and export and that's something that our organisations are going to focus a lot on in, in the next four years if DFAT fund us. Um, but, you know, that's something we we are really focused on because what it does, it attracts really great investment into the region. You can then lock up pristine environments. You can either lock up a pristine environment and generate a carbon, uh, carbon credit off that. Um, or you can lock up an area and forest it and then, um, you know, reforest it and generate carbon credits off that, which is much more, it generates a lot more carbon credits and that's probably a model. But when I think about Vanuatu and I think about all the colonial type um, coconut plantations, which are pretty much all going senile now, um, well, those we can you know, they need to be pulled out and rather than planting new coconut trees, well, we could reforest that with a different type of fast-growing timber and Vanuatu could become, you know, their biggest export could be carbon credits and whilst protecting the environment. Likewise with Fiji, PNG, amazing place. We sort of need to, a bit more complicated on land issues and so um, there is room for hope there is more digital activity happening than ever before. We're seeing that feedback coming with e-commerce. But the one challenge there with e-commerce is that the air freight rates and and um, call out the DHLs, the FedEx, the TNTs of this world, their rates are so expensive yeah. that it's, it almost is not worth doing e-commerce in, in, for some products because the cost of shipping is so high that you actually, no one's going to buy it at that price. Yeah. There's also the banking architecture as well around being able to set up merchant facilities in some countries mm -hmm. where there isn't appropriate correspondent banking relationships. So that's mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. serious impediment. <coughs> Zane, you've touched on the issue of mobility already. You've talked about the, the palm and all of that sort of thing. And I, I guess I'm, I'm keen to know what your thinking is about how the labour mobility piece, whether it's people coming for six months or four years, how does that intersect with growing and promoting Pacific exports? What do you see as the link, if any, between people taking part in these labour programmes and then over the longer term, increased trade ties. Is there, is there a linkage there? And if so, what, yeah, what might it look I, like? I, I think so. I, I touched on this uh, briefly um, before. And I, I think the challenge for us in the Pacific is our remoteness. It really is. And then with a rising cost around logistics right now, you know, for a business like ours, a business uh, like FIPES, um, to be able to, um, you know, sustain a price point, um, um, in a market like Australia, uh, maybe out of reach to the Australian consumer, um, just because of those increased uh, cost in our supply chain. You know, so certainly, um, you know, the Pacific Labour um, Scheme uh, or Mobility Scheme is a welcomed one, uh, because as I mentioned previously, uh, remittances back to the Pacific are a significant um, uh, income for various countries. Uh, like I like I said, um, in 2019, the remittances from Australia back into Fiji alone 
was worth 400 million Aussie dollars. That, that's significant. So the fact that the seasonal workers now uh, and the uh, consolidation to the PALM program allowing uh, low skilled workers to come into Australia to fill those gaps uh, and stay here for up to four years. Um, and not only uh, uh, fill those gaps, uh, earn a higher wage and remit funds back to their various Pacific Islander countries, uh, but also bringing the mana, as we probably discussed previously, uh, Caleb, into Australia and the cross-cultural piece that we bring uh, into Australia as well is important. But also, I think at the same time, we need to be um, aware of the brain drain from the Pacific uh, as this continues to develop. I think ongoing training and the sustainability focus with educational programs to support these type of initiatives and these gaps in the Australian market are so important from the Pacific side of things. Yeah. Caleb, did you want to chime in? Yeah, look, I agree. I just wanted to make um, respond to the brain drain issue. It, it's something that comes up a lot, and I, I it, it exists for sure. But I do think it's just a short term adjustment because what what needs to happen is bringing Pacific Island workers into Australia, where most of them uh, receive additional training and um, certifications and, and, and different requirements. They're making good money. They're having an international experience. They're doing all of that. And before long, and, and I'll use the Vanuatu example, that, you know, we were bringing uh, workers out of Vanuatu into Australia. They were working in kitchens. There's something like um, vacancies for 80,000 cooks in kitchens across Australia. Um, and that's just cutting carrots and onions and, and you know, basic Cert 2 sort of stuff. Um, but wouldn't it be great that over time, you know, Pacific Islanders could come and have an international experience, um, get their qualifications up and then return back home and push out, you know, some of the, um, you know, the expat type of jobs and those sort of things. And so I think the labour mobility over over the middle to the long run actually just enriches the labour market in both Australia and, and in the Pacific in Islands yeah. as well. But okay. in the short term, yeah, there's a bit of pain. Yeah. yeah. Alison, did you want to add in on this? Yeah, sorry to, to interrupt. I just wanted to sort of back that up. And um, as mentioned before, as president of the Australia Fiji Business Council, one of our um, members was is was and is uh, very keen, a large hotel chain with businesses in both countries, very keen to to facilitate this where they can move staff between Fiji and Australia. They bring them in from Fiji, they can have them work, they can upskill them and then they can bring them back. You know, it's a there's all sorts of different layers of opportunities. And we've been working with 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 this uh, this member to try and help facilitate this as part of um, the expansion of the labour mobility program. So, you know, there's a there's there's quite a lot of as Caleb said there's a there's a lot of layers of benefit and um, particularly if it's approached in a, a sort of um strategic and um, and methodical way an innovative way I should say mm. so, so. you know I mean I think we've heard a range of different viewpoints and one the one that I would add is that in terms of building exports and trade, it's about business to business linkages and business people do business with other business people. And, you know, yes, there's a certain amount that everybody's got used to doing online in the last couple of years, but essentially people want to meet face to face. They want to come and look at the products and talk about the products and, 
and have those conversations. And I think we do need to recognise that even with the advances that have been made, there are some really serious limitations mm. to the ability of Pacific business people to move uh, easily and quickly um, into Australia, whether it's to meet potential clients, attend business fair, come and sit and listen to conversations mm-hmm. like this. That's not something that's easy for them to yeah. do. Yeah. And whilst we've heard some important things from this new government, we've yet to hear anything really significant on that score. And I think that certainly, um, you know, I know plenty of people in business in the region that would be looking for something meaningful on that score in order to take this forward. That's me editorialising. <laughs> I didn't get where I am today without editorialising. Fipe, <laughs> um, I want to talk, come to you now to talk about the field of creative industries because I feel it is one that is still underdone when it comes to thinking about livelihood opportunities, including exports. So what do you see are the opportunities for Pacific creative entrepreneurs when it comes to exporting, whether that's goods or services? As the borders open heading into Samoa, everyone's excited about going back to Samoa. And I'm excited about everything that's going to come out of Samoa. You know, we've been in lockdown for a couple of years, but it doesn't mean that we stop being creative. You know, we were probably more creative. We, we went more into the arts and understanding our traditions and our ways of life. And especially for the diaspora too, you know, two years of um, being away from home, you really started to ask some questions of who, who you are within this land. Um, so I'm excited to see, you know, I'm excited for the aunties that have been making the tapa and the siapo and uh, weaving their mats and stuff. And we talk about exports as in the containers and the uh, loose cargo, but there's also the akupaos, the, you know, the bags that are being brought over from uh, when we go home to visit our families and we get to purchase all these amazing traditional um, art pieces and bring them back uh, to, to Australia or New Zealand. During those two years in lockdown, um, you know, on, in the digital space, I think we, many Pacific creatives were able to activate the, um, the online digital space. As a Polynesian dance teacher, I went from teaching a room of 20 to 30 students to all of a sudden holding a class that had, you know, 500 students from all over the world. People were able to buy downloads of our classes and things like that. And that wasn't just for myself. Um, Our dance group, Nuhalani, would tour artists from Tahiti, from Hawaii, from Samoa, bring them through Australia and New Zealand to do workshops obviously not being able to travel and provide those services, they were on the online space. They were able to um, run workshops for over a thousand people would be registering for these workshops. So income was still coming into the Pacific, but we were activating the online space and being creative with it. Mm. And also being able to showcase our um, our culture. Mm. It was an exciting time to be dancing with someone in Germany and they're doing Ori Tahiti, you know, dancing with someone in um in uh, California who is uh, doing a Samoan Siva with us. So it's not just, you know, the traditional tapa cloths and the um, uh, siapo, the the woven fine mats, but there's also, you know, our cultures are so rich. There's so much potential there um, to be 
export to be shared. Shared. You know, yeah. <laughs> export it seems like such a strange word to use in that space, yeah. but you know, to be shared and to be appreciated. And um, yeah. Yeah. And like I say, I think it's a really important space. Caleb, did you want to? Oh, yeah. And look, we've worked in the creative space for a while. And I think we do, we've never got it right because I think we look at it in such commercial terms, you know, it's it's exports, it's commercial deals. And, and I do wonder that in the new digital space that we all live, that is there not an opportunity for creators to generate income through new products and services like non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and, and um, you, you know, there are other products and other digital products that the people are buying and, you know, buying um, a package and, um, to, to, to learn about, you know, different cultures and stuff. And I don't think us, we as an organisation have got that. I don't know if we have the expertise, but again, um, I think it's a future piece that, you know, they, it could be really quite exciting and a, and a nice way to protect the cultural traditions and heritage mm-hmm. in a in a respectful way versus trying to commercialise it and do something else with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, food mm-hmm. for thought for the future. Definitely. So Zane, uh, so th- this whole this whole performance has been so that you and I can talk about Carver. So the exporters, this this current iteration of the experts survey doesn't capture the impact of the current trial of commercial imports in, of Carver into Australia. Obviously, the next one will have much more to say about that. Yes, boss. But based on your experience and what you're hearing from others in the sector, including my husband, who is also a Carver importer, what 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 can you tell us about this trial so far? What what what's the story we're, so far? We're six months into the trial because uh, we only started uh, importing kava from the Pacific, regulated as a food uh, since December, um, and and trade data that I reviewed from uh, DFAT suggests that in that period uh, through till the 30th of June, we've imported 96 ton of kava into Australia. Um, uh, which translates to uh, between 11 to 15 million Aussie dollars. Um, and a large proportion of those exports uh, originate from uh, Fiji, followed by Tonga, um, and then Vanuatu. And surprisingly, number four on that list is New Zealand, uh, because New Zealand don't grow cover. So there must be some uh, repurposing and value add from New Zealand back into the Australian market. You know, and if I can. I recommend to the 183 exporters that have participated in this pilot trial to date is to ensure that, you know, not only are the um, bags, as you see here, compliant with uh, labels to food safety standards, uh, but also what's inside the bag also complies with food safety standards. Uh, That's important. This is only a trial for two years, Mm -hmm. and we hope it goes beyond that two-year period. So certainly if we can be more uh, cautious with letting through, uh, you know, um, exporters who truly believe and support uh, this pilot by compliance, uh, I think that's an integral part to the sustainability and the longevity of this program. Mm, uh, yeah. yeah. But generally, how do you feel the people feeling about it? Generally positive? Yeah, v- very, very positive. I think there's a lot of excitement in the Pacific uh, right now. Uh, particularly for um, Pacific Islanders living in Australia, having to uh, finally have access to their traditional drink uh, is, is wonderful. Um, you know, 
I think Kava was restricted uh, in Australia since 2007, so it's been a long time uh, to get to this stage. Um, but but certainly, uh, Caleb touched on this point earlier um, in one of his uh, conversations around the importance of quality, uh, the importance of sustainability, traceability, and transparency uh, in compliance with Food Standards Australia. It's mm. so critical. Mm, yeah. Um, do you, on this side, on the in, on the import side, from the point of view of uh, Australian government border controls, and bearing in mind that there's also been the COVID thing, do you think that they were ready for how much was going to come in that period of time? Do you think do you think it exceeded expectations? I think it may have exceeded expectations for sure, for sure. So it, it's a welcomed initiative in the Pacific, certainly post-COVID, as part of the recovery. Mm. Um, to various economies that are able to export kava into Australia. So it, it is a blessing in that, in that sense, uh, Tess. But again, I just, yeah, I can't emphasize enough the importance of the long-term view and the sustainability of this pilot uh, through compliance. That's right. I agree entirely. And that's why you need to buy from good operators that are bringing in quality kava, Indeed. whether it's coming from Fiji or Vanuatu. <laughs> or New Zealand. Or New Zealand. Okay, not we're, not going, India. No, we're going to move to our second session of um, Q&A. So I'm going to have a look on screen. If, you, if there are any questions in the room, please raise your hand so I know to come to you to ask so that you can ask your question. At the back. Please introduce yourself before you ask your question. Hi, Stefan Armbruster, the journalist that covers Pacific. Um, Zane, hi. Uh, just looking at your, looks like a small bag of carbon there. Yep. Um, and what you were saying, what we were talking about earlier with brain draining, is, uh, what's, happening, is what's happening with carbon in the region now uh, similar to that where the best carbon is being exported and the domestic market is left with the lower quality? Look, I think we have to have the demand on the other side of the border um, and the pull effect, uh, as we discussed earlier, in, in relation to Carver. Right now, with the 96 tons in the market, as of the 30th of June, Stefan, I, I can certainly say that that's impacted price and there's a glut in the market as a result. Um, so whilst there is a significant volume in Australia, there's still... We can see because of uh, price drops in the kava industry in Fiji, as an example, there's still a lot of kava around because when COVID hit and it impacted tourism in the Pacific, a lot of folks went back to their farms and their villages and their communities. And at that time, kava was paying a super high price. I think uh, farm gate prices were in Fiji for dried roots uh, up to $120 a kilo. So every Tom, Dick and Harry that lost their job uh, as a result of COVID went back to the village and started planting kava. Three years later, we have a significant volume of kava in the ground right now. And whilst uh, exports have increased, as I stated earlier, uh, referring to some of the statistics from Investment Fiji, um, we still have a long way to go before we have that issue. And certainly um, focusing on sustainable methods of planting and propagation of kava, uh, you know, uh, more robust supply chains that we develop, not just in Fiji, but across the Pacific, especially in compliance with uh, food standards and the differentiation between 
noble kava versus two-day kava varieties um, and how we can ensure uh, that we are promoting noble kava varieties for use uh, in finished product formats in Australia is so important. I think it's interesting because, as you and I both know, Zain, that um, as well as what's going on at the national level in the carbon-producing countries such as Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, Tonga, there's also work going on at the regional level around under the forum yes. um, about a regional carbon strategy. I, I'm really interested to see how that goes because some countries, such as Vanuatu, for example, they have legislation, two-day carver can't go into the export stream, you know, they've, they've sort of already got that far down yeah. and other countries are, are, are still on that pathway. So I think it's really interesting to see how these various conversations are happening, both nationally and regionally. One thing I would like to ask you just to follow up is what impact have you seen or have you yet of people now being able to travel to Fiji and bring back um, a personal allowance of kava is how does that intersect with trying to sell them kava in Australia? Well, I think um, prior to the pilot kava uh, uh, trial uh, program, um, as a first step, I think the Australian government increased the personal importation from two kilos to four kilograms. But then the borders shut, mm. and all of a sudden, kava uh, dried up in Australia. You know, and uh, um, on the black market in Australia at the time, uh, I think kava prices even hit uh, as much as 400 Aussie dollars a kilo, um, which is great for those who were in the trade at the time. But but certainly, um, um, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, so I guess we've got to see how that affects it. If people are, can get back into that going over and bringing back four kilos at a time, yes, but, but they're then less likely again, to want to buy it online in Australia. Yeah, but... Uh, Again, again, given the volumes that we have in Australia right now and the price points that we have here, you know, it's almost as competitive as you can buy in the supermarkets, uh, yeah, yeah. Stefan, you know, so, yeah, uh, there has to be that uh, balance um, that's really important, again, for longevity. Yeah. Um, and I guess it kind of comes back to where we started with the tourism and the relationship between tourism and buying products. So, for example, you know, people go to Fiji and they might go to a the hotel, might have a cover. Yeah ceremony or they may drink cover in a village when they're on a tour and then it's about letting them know that when they get back to Australia they can continue if that's something they want to enjoy and they want to share with their friends they can buy the product in Australia as well so absolutely. it's about linking those two together absolutely any other questions yes Sorry, can I just ask you to raise your voice a little bit so we can hear you? Okay. My comment, first of all, is to say thank you to Investment Trade and Invest Australia. I think they've done a wonderful job in promoting export from More importantly, the changes or the improvement is bringing to the lifestyle of many poor families. Really, really wonderful that the Government of Australia through defense also I think we should acknowledge effort Mr. for our as a museum. They're doing a wonderful job. But I think the important part while we talk in this room here is that to see the changes in export that has brought to the villages, poor villages, the rural areas, the islands, you know, not only but throughout the Pacific. I think it's a wonderful thing to acknowledge. 
got his job, and uh, all the time he spends emailing and many other things. Thank you very much. My question again is comes to the very first presentation that Keller made, it's a lack of data. I think this is what I think you said about uh, people thinking about 97 tons of power. But this is important, the multi-school policies. We need data. So how far did that goes even for Australian government to support further in the various industries? Agriculture for that matter. Because <coughs> we did hear that turmeric was one of the products that was not there. Afghanistan is under. But I think at the same time, you see much more products that you have the Sava not mentioned. But again, not so vegetables going into the Auckland market. Mango is going into Japanese market. And other products. So I think that my question here to Caleb is that what sort of information or what sort of work or what sort of research has been done to improve the data collection? So with data, you can make decisions. Again, you have mentioned a lot about the consistency of products. And of course, this climate change with unpredictable weather and all that. It does impact on, you know, and then we did see the policy on disaster preparedness, how far that can go in there. Because for marketing, you need a product, you need a consistency in supply. And similarly, with exporters. Okay, Caleb, would yep. you want to? Well, thank you very much for the for the kind words. Um, Greatly appreciated. I'll I'll pay you later. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, look, the data. Every sector across the region, there is a lack of quality data. Um, you know, so do, you really have to break it down by sector to see where the support is. I know that under European Development Fund 11, EDF 11, that there is quite a bit of money um, dedicated to collecting better quality data, um, and particularly around standards and tourism. You know, they're, they're, they're going to do that. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of also an obligation of the national governments as well to, to track that data. And then it becomes a question of priorities, I think, as well. You know, we know that a lot of Pacific Island countries are, uh, have a, a lot of debt at the moment, a lot of high levels of foreign debt. Uh, there's a long list of priorities, you, you know, and and again, data, data and, and laboratories to also help with the consistency sort of always seems to be down down the line on priorities and, you know, and, and certainly healthcare, education, infrastructure, law and justice, water, sanitary, you know, those things do need to take a priority. But again, without good data and good facts, we will struggle to make good decisions. So it is it is fundamentally important. Um, into Australia, and you, you actually sometimes better to go to the sort, to the exporting country to find out what came out of a specific country. That data does exist, but it's a question of what, what are you going to use that data for um, and who's going to analyse it and do it? You know, we've got our two reports, um, Pacific Export Survey, Pacific Business Monitor. I can't tell you what a massive job it is to capture the data, analyse it and produce, um, you know, useful documents as well. So, yeah, definitely um, it's, a, it's an ongoing need. So I didn't answer your question, I know, mm -hmm. but it's it's a challenge. Can I just make one more you know, comment on that? I mean, this data, you know, with this digital technology, you know, fiber, it's so much easy to communicate and all that. 
you know, for poor farmer out in the islands of Quebec, I think it's so important that they know there's a market. There's a market. And then it does help them that, you know, to produce that crop, cassava for that matter, cattle. I think that's something that I feel that all money spent in many other projects, you know, collection and dissemination of the data to the appropriate you know, groups of people, I think it will help further promote this industry. You know, as we heard from, uh, you know, Cocoa, you know, cocoa coming from Savai, but we do know that cocoa industry, which was a single industry for 25 years, but then it went down because of the the world market price wasn't there to pick up. You know, even if you look at East New Britain, Mahuriki, here that the governor wants it, if I went to do some work, say we're born in cocoa farm, we die in cocoa. There's nothing can move out of this because that's the money which was just sold. It's uh, it's somehow one of those things that is important that data. It's not only that, but I feel you know, food is always struggling to get the data out. But here, if we really we want to really focus how the trade can be improved, getting the data and getting to the organizations responsible for growing crops, for example, get the data. Because that's where I think if we can help government divert the resources, or the donors divert the resources to see that that is an industry that there's a the market for. I think, Fipe, you, you mentioned about how your business was very much um, built around or incorporated family and kinship networks. Mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of speaks to one of the points you made of how is, you know, when there's information available, what, what are the methods that people actually are using to transmit that and share that knowledge? Because, you know, I mean, we can all sit here and devise fabulous flowcharts of how it could look, but how is it really, how are how people really, really sharing that data and that information? <laughs> they say the salmon Wi-Fi is faster than any other Wi-Fi <laughs> on the planet. And that's from, you know, mouth to mouth. If there is a delay in our shipment, um, you know, I'll call the exporting company in Samoa, but then I'm also going to call auntie and I'm also going to call my uncle who lives near the docks to understand, you know, which, which boat is is transporting from island to island. Is it the smaller ferry or is it the larger ferry? Or oh, the larger ferry has been broken down for three weeks and that's why it's only the small ferry. You know, there's little bits of information that Living Cork is quite blessed to have because we have those connections on country and on land. Mm. Um, Sava'i Koko and the Samoan Chamber of Commerce did a, a project, and I think it is an ongoing project to supply uh, cacao seedlings to anyone who wanted to cultivate cacao. Um, so for free. So they had many different people from all over Savai coming through to pick up the, the koko. Um, they now have firms where it takes three to four years, like similar to kava, to, um, for a tree to, to fruit. And those trees are fruiting and they're being brought to Savai koko for the post-harvesting processes. So, you know, I guess our most vulnerable farmers, vulnerable to climate change and things like that, um, are have now uh, a, a way to a, a market for their for their koko. So there are programs in Samoa to support the more vulnerable farmers. And you know, thank you to spaces like MFAT and Whitakers and Savai Koko that have created these great um, post harvesting processing spaces that a community can use for the cacao. I would love to see that for other produce. We we work worked and have, are still working with a ginger farmer in Nofwali'i. Um, and, you know, it's a learning 
a huge learning curve for us understanding the drying techniques of the ginger and trying to get it export ready but um, you know not having the uh, not being in country and being able to tap into uh, resources or understanding how the laboratories there can support um, testing the produce the the dry dry ginger everything's being sent back to Australia so you know for a small farmer who who just you know would love an answer then and there it's it it takes a lot of patience um to be in that space and you know and a lot of funding from from the importers or from us who are trying to get it export ready um that's a that's a gap you know to be able to have those kind of facilities similar to the ones that Savai Koko has for other different producers said so our small um subsistent farmers can come with their you know small produce, uh, small quantities of produce and, and get it done to a high quality um, standard. Yeah, no, it is, it is a huge challenge. And, you know, in, in a bigger place like Australia, you know, someone would set up a business, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's there's, there's not sufficient demand. So then it's like, you know, should it be a public-private partnership? Is this something that donors can fund? And, and these are some of these issues are not new. So when I was working with the Enterprise Challenge <coughs> Fund, you know, these are the sorts of things that we talked about then. Um, obviously, the context changed. The context has changed. The appetite has changed on both the sending and the and the importing side of it. So I think it's really important to be able to have conversations like this, to be able to draw on the work of PTI and others, to be able to. Yes, revisit conversations, but revisit them with new thinking and refresh thinking and hopefully take them forward. On that note, thank you very much for your questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get to them, um, but uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to revisit this conversation. Um, I'd like to ask I'd like to invite you to uh, briefly thank the panel before Stefan comes and gives us an official thanks. So thank you, everybody. <laughs> I'd now like to invite Stefan Armbruster, who is the SBS Queensland and Pacific Correspondent and an Industry Fellow of the Griffith Asia Institute, to offer some words of thanks and to bring the proceedings to a close. Thanks thank you, Stefan. And thank you for inviting me to give the vote of thanks. It's been a fascinating discussion on the back of the Pacific Islands Exports Survey. I think we all agree about that. And uh, a lot of the issues that have been discussed here, well, they're, they're as big as the region itself, and, and so are the challenges and opportunities. So I'd like to uh, vote of thanks on behalf of us all to the wonderful panellists we've had here today, Alison, Caleb, Kipe and Zane and the insights they've given us into the industry and, and the experiences they've had and, and how they see the future unfolding. I've learned a lot in this process. Um, learned things about containers I never knew about. Um, <laughs> LCL was a foreign, foreign concept to me until today. Um, also, I thank, of course, Tess, who um, worked so hard to put, um, put so much effort into highlighting the issues and themes in, in a national and international space, and of course being instrumental here. She's now Senior Research Fellow at the Asia, uh, the Griffith Asia Institute and runs the Pacific Hub. Um, and uh, where did I get to? Yeah. Yes, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, so yeah, a vote of thanks to our, our panelists, and I'm sure this discussion will, um, will 
Well, this panel will provoke a lot more discussion as we go along. Um, I think Caleb is offering to give out his phone number. Yep, absolutely. Yes, if you want to call Caleb. <laughs> 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 phone number is available. And I, love, so, I love to talk, so that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and also to the Griffith Asia Institute and to the Pacific Hub, and also Pacific Trade Investors for helping organise this panel here today. So, if you'd like to put your hands together, grab <laughs> Thank you to all of you for participating as well. Thank you. Back to you, Tess. Thank you. So thank you to those of you who joined us online. This is where you leave us. Especially thank you very much, Alison, for managing all the tech issues and the various injuries that you're carrying. We very much appreciate your participation. Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, I appreciate being a virtual participant in these strange COVID times. And I didn't get to really communicate that directly, but congratulations to, to Caleb and PTI on, on the, the outcomes of the research, because I think it's very, very useful. Um, it has been in the past, but even increasingly as time moves forward. So well done and keep at it. And thank you, Tessa, for having us all. Griffith University. But you know that, that we have recorded this evening's proceedings and we will be putting that out through our shared and joint and several channels for those of you that want to share it with other colleagues and networks. So you'll be getting plenty of notice of that via the usual, the usual methods. For those of you who are here with us at our lovely South Bank campus, please join us for refreshments in the function room, which is one level up in this building. So you need to either use the lift or the stairs to go up one level and the function room is on the right hand side. So I hope you'll be able to stay and join us Carry on the chat. Make sure you grab Caleb's phone number. Zane, Zane might offer you some kava. Um, it's a great chance to do a little bit of networking and continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Great work, everybody. Thank you. Was that good? You happy with that? Yeah, you, you're a, you're a staff. Oh, I've got moments. There's your reward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? I don't that's want your reward. That's exchange of the. Okay, cool, great.